0: The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributors. And you do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Good morning. I am going to be taking us through the entire book of Esther this morning. And I don't know if you'll want to read along or just listen, either is fine with me, Uh, but I will be working through the book this morning, and so if you do have that or want to have that in front of you, it might help you to also know what it is that I'm talking about. We had just a a little bit of a taste this morning in first word of what it means to raise our awareness of how the world works, of what our culture does, of what the systems are, or in the New Testament they would have been referred to as the principalities and powers, And the question that I find myself asking when I'm part of an exercise like that is, why do we have to do this again and again and again and again? And the truth is, we don't, um, unless we actually want something different from what is. We don't have to do this. I was asked this morning to speak about privilege, and in thinking about what the word privilege is, I realized that there are a lot of different ways of determining it. Uh, Most often, we think of privilege as being a kind of power dynamic that I have access to, or freedom to, or visibility for, or the ability to, and someone else doesn't have those same things. I came up with several different definitions for privilege. One is, I'm exempt from the oppression that my neighbor experiences. Another definition, I'm complicit in the oppression that my neighbor experiences. Another definition, I benefit from the oppression that my neighbor experiences. And I want to say, no, this isn't true. But I know that in relationships where there is a differential of power, that all these things can be true and often do become true, no matter what the relationship. If I see myself as different from another person, then it's a very short and simple step to me seeing myself as better than the other person. And we see this dynamic played out in human relationships universally and pervasively across time, throughout culture. So the question is, what do we do about it? And I think that one of the problems is actually the word. That um, when I talk about privilege, I talk about privilege from a position of privilege. And when I apologize for privilege, I apologize for privilege from a position of privilege. And the other, the person that I have, more privileged than never gets to be on stage. It's always me. Even when I'm confessing, their only position as other is to just silently accept my confession, and then we can all feel better about the oppression that they're experiencing and move forward. So I've picked the book of Esther because the book of Esther provides a much more complex study uh, than just about any other short section of scripture that I could think of, of what privilege does, and Esther doesn't actually focus very much time on it because that's not what matters, of what privilege does and of how we undo it. If there are systems of oppression that are affecting my neighbor, how do we change that? How do we undo those? How do we rebuild or, or build from scratch a completely different kind of world, a completely different kind of existence, a completely different kind of kingdom? How do we seek an answer to the prayer, Lord, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Esther happens to be a book of the Bible in which the name of God is not mentioned. Uh, And so some might say that that makes the book of Esther a little bit suspect. Like maybe it's not a godly enough book. Why is it in the Bible anyway? God is um, present in the story in some surprising ways. And I'm going to get to that at the very end if I get that far. I think I'm going to get that far. But what the story does is by, at least by name, removing God from the story, we are forced to look at the human dynamics, the very real nature of our relationship to one another, to the other. And the book of Esther, through these dynamics, questions us. Because the reality is that privilege is complex. And it is complex enough that it is easy for me to deny that I have it, especially if I am accused of it. And Esther says, well, look at this. Consider this. What about this? There are four characters in the book of Esther that I want to specifically focus on. Queen Vashti in chapter 1, Mordecai and Esther in chapters 2 through 4, especially chapter 4. And then also Higai, uh, who has a bit role that actually is a really important role. There are two other characters that matter in the story, uh, and I cannot very well pronounce one of their names. Um, King Ahasuerus, that's my best. It sounds like he's saying something bad and laughing at the same time. <laughs> and he may have a different name in the version that you have uh, in front of you. And then Haman, uh, our villain, the dark shadow of this particular story. And I want to look at what what this story is doing in unpacking or challenging or critiquing the way that we think about these power dynamics between us and other people. I'll start in chapter one. And I'm going to read just the first nine verses of chapter one and and then discuss a little bit about what I think is happening here. This happened in the days of Ahasuerus, the same Ahasuerus who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. So we're reading a story of empire. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his officials and ministers. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were present, while he displayed the great wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and pomp of his majesty for many days. 180 days in all. That's a party. I'm just imagining how they got the food there, let alone the rest of the decorations. And we get a sense of the decorations a little bit further on here, verse 5. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in the citadel of Susa, both great and small, a banquet lasting for seven days, a banquet to follow the banquet. In the court of the garden of the king's palace, there were white cotton curtains and blue hangings tied with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of oared stones. Drinks were served in golden goblets, goblets of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Drinking was by flagons without restraint, for the king had given orders to all the officials of his palace to do as each one desired. Furthermore, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the palace of King Ahasuerus. This is the introduction to the story a great empire, an incredibly wealthy empire, uh, an empire uh, including, oh, I've already lost the number, hundred, there it is, 127 provinces, all the way from India to Ethiopia, one of the greatest empires uh, that we know of in world history, um, celebrated its might and its wealth in an incredibly visible way. And then, to top it all off, did something special for the people at the center of the empire, those who had the most access, uh, the most, as we would say, privilege. And they got drunk. And they were given permission to do just about anything without restraint. Uh, They were told to celebrate, and it was expected that they would indeed celebrate, and who cares what happens? Except we get to the end of this second banquet, the seventh day of the smaller banquet that's happening there at the citadel, a fortress city, a fortress of empire, the capital of this particular empire, the home of the king, the garden of his very palace. And he decides that he needs something more. This isn't enough. In order to prove to everyone once and for all how wonderful he really is, he needs them to see one part of his property that, has been concealed up to this point. He determines that he needs to have the queen come and parade in front of all of his guests. And this is where the story gets interesting. A good narrative includes conflict. And the conflict here might seem like a small one to us. The queen doesn't think it's a good idea. Actually, I don't know if that's what she thinks. But the queen refuses to come and parade herself in front of the king and his guests, and we can probably imagine the reasons. It might not have been a safe thing for her to do. It may have been publicly demeaning. Uh, it might not have felt like love um, to have someone call on her as if she were property, which she was. And so she says no, and the king consults with his sages to try and figure out what to, what to do, and the advice that they give him is that her refusal to come forward is not just a refusal of him personally, but a refusal of everything that his empire stands for. In fact, they see Vashti's refusal to parade herself in front of the king and his, and his guests as the kind of thing that could cause the end of his empire, that her refusal might inspire others to refuse, that women throughout the land, inspired by Queen Vashti's ability to stand up for herself, might also begin to think of themselves as people, not property. In our own country, we have um, a history of fear regarding the other, a fear of revolt, A fear of revolution, a fear of military coup, or of government disruption. And we've come up with a lot of strategies through our history, some of which are practiced today. Removing somebody's autonomy, taking away their vote, um, stealing their property, limiting their freedom. There are all kinds of ways that empire limits or corrects behavior that looks like it might be disruptive to empire. And in this case, uh, Vashti is banished from the palace. There may be other things that happen to her. We don't know. She's not central to the story. And that's how privilege works. Privilege always centers the privileged. So she exists not just as other, she also exists as a foil. Her purpose in the story is to exemplify a problem that the king had to figure out how to solve, and he did. And now he has another problem, because the story is always about him, even if he's the least interesting character in the story. He's filled with anger. He remembers Vashti. And the sense that we get in the story, it doesn't exactly say this, but the sense that we have is that he needs now a replacement. And so we move to chapter 2, verse 5 is where I'm going to start reading. Now there was a Jew in the citadel of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with King Jeconiah of Judah, whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried away. Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. The girl was fair and beautiful, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. So we have two new others. First, there's Vashti, a woman who stood up for herself and was banished. And now we have um, two foreigners whose family had been captured in the conquest of Jerusalem. One who's also an orphan. And so she's been raised by her cousin, who in some translations is referred to as her uncle. It's a complicated family connection. And apparently... They live in the citadel, so not only are they uh, foreigners um, in a foreign land, potentially dealing with difficulties of uh, being othered—how they see, how they're seen, how they speak, uh, their traditions, the foods that they eat, the part of the city that they live in—often. In ancient history, people who were othered and find themselves close to centers of power are there as servants or as slaves. We don't know very much about Mordecai or about Esther, also called Hadassah in the text. But we do know that they were all the family that they had. And Mordecai sees an opportunity an opportunity to improve their situation, an opportunity to improve their situation that is not only a risk because of who they are. And later in the story, uh, we we are told that Esther has to actually conceal her heritage, or that she chooses to conceal her heritage, probably for the sake of safety. The other often has to learn to pass, not necessarily to escape from oppression, but to limit it, to survive. And Esther and Mordecai are doing that throughout this entire story. They make a choice. They take a risk that they are going to try to improve their situation as any human being, understandably, would want to do, knowing that if they fail, not only could this be the end of their lives as they know it, But having taken this risk, how are their own people going to view them? Will they ever have a home? Pearl S. Buck uh, deals with this in in one of her novels, The Good Earth. Um, The irony is that Pearl S. Buck is writing about a culture that is not her own. She's writing about Chinese culture. And she's writing about it in a language that is not not her own. She's writing about it in English. Pearl S. Buck uh, grew up in China and then moved back to her parents' home country, the United States, for university and um, is well known here as an American author. But she didn't have a culture of her own. Esther and Mordecai are in a similar situation but worse because they also don't have access to any of the things that Pearl S. Buck would have had access to. They're in a culture that's not their own. And they may forever lose the culture. That is, theirs, the people um, that they have shared heritage with, shared culture with, shared experience with, shared religion with. They take a risk. And the risk appears to pay off. The turn came for each of the girls to go in to King Ahasuerus. We don't know what's involved, um, but apparently there are even more risks. After being 12 months. Under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their cosmetic treatment, six months with the oil of myrrh, six months with perfumes and cosmetics for women, when the girl, this is Esther, went into the king, she was given whatever she asked for to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she went in. Then in the morning, she came back. It's pretty obvious from the text. that Esther does not have a lot of agency in the story. She gets to choose what risk she will take on. She does not get to choose what happens to her during that experience. And again, the story tells us only enough about her to set her up as a foil to the king's story, to the story of empire. Esther's placement in this story is not Um, because of anything special that she has done. Esther's placement in this story is because of her contrast to the king, to what the king cares about, to what exists for empire. This story has been passed down to us because something happens in this story that shouldn't happen, that never happens. Esther somehow finds herself in a position where she has more agency than she's ever had before. It does not mean that she's a person of agency or that she is free, because we can tell from reading the story, looking back on the culture, that she's a slave, and in fact, that she's a sex slave, and in fact, um, that she is very likely going to be thrown away the same way that Vashti was. We just don't know when. And the story doesn't tell us that because that's not what matters in the story. What matters in the story is the disruption to empire that Esther has a very small hand in helping to make happen. But Esther almost chooses not to take that risk. She's risked too much already, and she's lost her family, and she's lost her people, and she doesn't want to lose her life. Who could blame her? And so in chapter 4, we see Mordecai, Esther's cousin, making her life difficult. And even though she is not a person of privilege, her relationship with Mordecai is such that she has a little bit of privilege in relationship to him, and she resents that he expects her to do something with it that actually puts her at greater risk than she already is. Don't you know how much I've already taken on? I can just imagine her thinking... Chapter 4, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, and this is a reference to Haman preparing to get rid of the Jews. a Genocide is in the works, in the background of this story, and the story mentions it several times in order to highlight for us how dangerous the position is that both Mordecai and Esther are living in at this point. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city, wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. So he'd intended to go in further, but apparently he was prohibited entry In every province, wherever the king's command and his degree came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, take off that sackcloth, put on regular clothes please, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was happening and why. Privilege has also made Esther a little bit dumb about her people's experience. It's removed her enough from the persecution that she used to live with on a day-to-day basis that she's no longer in touch with what's actually happening. She has to ask. She knows to ask, though. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and charge her to go to the king to make supplication to him and entreat him for her people. Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and gave him a message for Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone, may that person live. I myself have not been called to come in to the king for thirty days. Esther tries to explain to Mordecai, I know it's bad for you, but listen to how bad it is for me. Something that we as readers often just skip over um, because we know that eventually Esther is going to understand Mordecai's version of events. This is how privilege makes us dumb. We are very attuned to our own pain and suffering. It is difficult to empathize with, let alone understand the risk or the threat that somebody else is facing, especially if understanding their pain requires that I set aside my own as less important for the time being. Esther doesn't have to set aside her pain in the story. What she does have to risk is death. And the question is, will she? And at least initially, she does not want to. Just like Jesus prayed, Lord, if you're willing, please take this cup from me. Esther sends a similar kind of response to Mordecai. I don't want to die. Mordecai receives the message. And he told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. This is what privilege is for. If I have privilege, it is my responsibility to take extra risk. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish." Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had had ordered him. Esther and Mordecai give us an example of how privilege is undone. The sin of privilege is that it allows me to think of myself as separate from other people, which means that privilege even when faced, even when I admit that I'm exempt from the oppression of my neighbor, even when I admit that I'm complicit in the oppression of my neighbor, even when I admit that I'm benefiting from the oppression of my neighbor, I'm continuing to see them as other than me. Esther and Mordecai, and they have an advantage in the story, they're cousins, They're both Jews. They're both under threat. And that advantage makes it a little bit easier for Esther to recognize, you're telling the truth, Mordecai. I do have to take this risk. It's a lose-lose. I might as well lose in the direction that carries the most potential for helping us both. Because we're both stuck in the same system. We both need to be saved from it. So you're right, I dare not stay silent. I can't. And then she asks Mordecai to pray for her. Jesus is asked, um, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story about a Samaritan, the story of the good Samaritan, a story that we're familiar with. And one of the things that happens in that story that I think is helpful for us in thinking about privilege is that Jesus doesn't just tell the story of someone who chooses to take a risk. Um, The Good Samaritan puts the man on his own donkey or mule. The Good Samaritan uses money out of his own pocket in order to pay for the housing uh, or shelter of the man who's been beaten and left for dead. The Good Samaritan treats the wounds of the man who's been beaten and left for dead. The Good Samaritan promises after three days that he will return. The reversal in the story of the Good Samaritan is that the Good Samaritan is the other. The Good Samaritan is the oppressed, the one who's persecuted. And Jesus makes the Good Samaritan central to his story. He centers the Good Samaritan in a way that makes the Good Samaritan the Christ figure, especially that part where he says that he will return on the third day. And if there's any more um, that the innkeeper Uh, has had to put out in order to care for this man. He will cover all of the remaining debts when he comes back. The story of Esther is one that I think is mostly familiar to us. The Jews are saved, and Haman, the bad guy, is um, killed. Uh, It's actually a pretty violent form of death. And again, depending on the translation, we might have that he's hanged or we might have that he's actually impaled on a a 10 or 15 foot tall pike and then his body left up as an example to others. Um, The Bible has a lot of violence in it. Uh, And what happens to Haman is incredibly violent. The story of Jesus unpacks the story of Esther a little bit further, in that um, the Old Testament tends to focus on evil people having, um, when God intervenes, justice served to them in exactly the way that we imagine justice should be served. Uh, From the very beginning of the Bible, we have early on a king named I, being hung from a tree. And all through the Old Testament, we have people who are hung up or put up as an example. Haman is just another one in this line of evil people who are finally getting what's come to them. And in substitutionary atonement theory, uh, we think that Jesus died on the cross in order to make it possible that no one else will have to go through this kind of justice ever again. But substitutionary atonement theory is not the only way of thinking about what Jesus has done. Another way is recapitulation, where Jesus actually puts a new head or a new understanding on these old stories of sacrifice and punishment in the Old Testament. God says to us through Jesus, I'm Haman, I take responsibility. And Jesus challenges us through the book of Esther. Are we willing to do the same? Can we say to Esther, we did this to you? Can we say to Mordecai, the loss of your family and of your land, that's on us. Can we say, To the eunuch Higai, who will never have a family of his own but is expected to take care of everybody else's, we will be your family. Can we say to Vashti, you were right to stand up for yourself and to challenge us and to point out our flaws. And instead of changing our behavior, we blamed you for that. So let's think about that and maybe think about what the book of Esther is saying to us about how we live and about how we might live. Let's let it challenge us.